A blessing to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I'm going to invite you to turn back in your scriptures to John chapter 6. While you're turning, I'm going to allow our children to be dismissed to Children's Church if you fall in that age bracket and would like to go, or parents, if your kids fall in that age bracket and you would really like for them to go, they can go to Children's Church now. Next week, uh, our family will be out traveling Uh, Lord willing, and we have our new associational mission strategist for the Pine Belt Baptist Association who will be here. Randy Sims is coming to preach next week, and I believe Randy will be a blessing to you as he comes and shares God's word with you next Sunday. Uh, So I encourage you, if you're in town, be here for that. Well, today we come to our, uh, I believe this is our eighth sermon as a congregation in John chapter 6. Uh, I preached seven, Brad preached one. And to be honest, I, I have loved our uh, study of John chapter 6. Um, we see in here, Jesus is the bread of life. But we're going to come into this text today, and we're going to see some people are going to walk away. And some people see him as the only life-giving bread. So here's a question I want you to think about as we come to our text in just a moment. Why do some leave and why do some stay? Why do some walk away thinking, no, there's something better than this? And why do some stay saying, I've got nowhere else I can go? Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. I'm going to invite you to stand for reverence of the reading of God's word if you're physically able to do that. I'm going to begin in John chapter 60 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 71. Hear the word of the Lord. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray for us, the church, today. I pray, Lord, for us to see as clearly, and maybe even more clearly than Peter. Peter said these words on Uh, the other side of your son's death and resurrection, we see on this side. But Lord, the question is right. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, I pray that every person that understands my voice has or will see the truthfulness of that statement. I pray, Lord, that we will not settle for what is inferior, but we will be satisfied by what is the best, the true bread of life, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. may be seated. Well, hunger is a universal feeling. Rich people get hungry, poor people get hungry. African-American people get hungry, white people get hungry, all races get hungry. My friend who was here with us uh, recently served as a missionary to Senegal and to France, what I believe is a third world country and a first world country. People in both countries get hungry. We all hunger. And as we're all created with a physical hunger that appears every few hours, or if you're a teenager, every few minutes, so we're created with a spiritual hunger. We have a hunger to be reconciled to a holy God. Now, throughout John chapter 6, Jesus has repeatedly claimed that he alone is the bread of life who satisfies our souls. And just like if you don't eventually eat physical food, you will die. So if we don't feast on the spiritual food of Jesus, we will die spiritually. Now we have seen manna alluded to at times in this chapter. All who ate that good gift of manna in the desert, they eventually died. It's a great gift. Its ultimate purpose was to point to the true bread who gives life, and that is Jesus Christ. So he is the bread we should crave, and he alone gives eternal life, and he does so to all who believe. Now, how does he do that? Well, last week as we unpacked uh, verses 53 through 58 in particular, we saw he does that through his death and resurrection on the cross. Now, as we come to the end of John 6, we see the cross has become a dividing line in the people who are hearing Jesus speak. And so, we come in, and there's been crowds following Jesus. Now, the crowds have enjoyed some aspects of Jesus' ministry. I think they love when the lame man walked. I think they're amazed when the blind man sees. And at the beginning of this chapter, when Jesus provides a feast of physical bread and fish, I think the crowd is thrilled. So much so that they want to make him king. So you can imagine throughout most of this chapter a big popular following for Jesus. But now, as we come to this final part of it, we see that a shift is occurring. When Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood as eternal life, this food-loving crowd is offended by the cross-preaching Jesus. And so we come to what a couple of commentators, Carter and Redberg, say may be the saddest verse in John's gospel. You want to see it? It's verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked 
with him. Now, when you see that, the scene is not a few people in the back slipping away. This is a mass exodus such that we can see the vast majority of the crowd leaves. Now, I want you, as you see that verse on the screen, how do we make sense of disciples leaving? When a couple of weeks ago, I told you that if you are a believer, Jesus will keep you. In fact, I made much of the fact from John chapter 6, verse 37, that if you're in Jesus, Jesus will never cast you out. I made much of the fact that if you're in Jesus, according to verse 39, he won't lose you. So let me ask you, if we look at that verse 66, why didn't he hold these people? Is it a problem of his power? Is he unable to keep them? So here's what we have to see. We have to see when Jesus uses, or when John uses the term disciple in verse 60 and verse 66, he didn't mean these are genuine disciples who stayed with him a time but left. Instead, he means these were always false disciples who were there only for the show not for the Savior. Now let me take you back in John's Gospel and see another place where he used a similar type term. Back in John chapter 2, we preached this a while back, but we see John used the term believe in a way that doesn't mean saving belief. Go back to verses 23 to 25 of John 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So John could use that term believe in verse 23 in such a way that he meant they believed because they liked the signs. They liked the miracles. But they weren't believing unto salvation in Jesus as the Messiah in the sense that he meant it to be as the dying and rising Messiah for people's sins. So, when we come back to John chapter 6, how do we know these folks weren't genuine disciples? Because they left. They left because of the message of the cross. In his first letter, his first epistle, John wrote in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But it went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So we're seeing here in this final closing section of John a difference between genuine disciples and false disciples. About a year ago, Amanda and I got rid of some couches. Now, we got them from her parents when we got married and they had had them for a while before then. They were good quality leather couches. My guess is they had lasted probably 25 to 30 years. So we got rid of those couches. Well, a few years ago, we bought a couch. It was at a great price. It was one of those doorbuster deals at a furniture store. I mean, we, we practically stole the thing. Well, it didn't last 25 years. Um, after about a year, 
it started peeling. You know how that happened? Started peeling? Um, it looked so bad that eventually when people came over, we had to throw a blanket over it so we wouldn't embarrass ourselves. We had to get rid of it. It didn't make the trip to Mississippi. It didn't make the cut from going to Arizona to Mississippi. That's how bad it looked. And it wasn't that old. So what happened? Well, it might have looked like leather. It was not leather. So for, what, for a time, what was fake looked like the real thing, but eventually its true nature was revealed. And I think that's the case here in John chapter 6. These disciples, this crowd, these people that are following are following because they like the free food. They look like disciples. They look like the real thing, but they weren't. They left. In fact, Jesus gives the illustration of one of the 12, one of those he's chosen, Judas Iscariot, and says he is a devil. Now, you remember at the Last Supper, think about this. At the Last Supper, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Nobody looks at Judas and says, aha, I knew it. It was him. I saw it all along, Jesus. That is not the response of the other 11 disciples. What is it? Is it I, Lord? Like, am I the one that's going to betray you? But here's the thing. Judas looks so much like a genuine follower that none of the other 11 peg him as the betrayer. But he wasn't. And here's the thing. The consequences for not following Jesus are far greater than just having to replace a couch. It is eternity. So, why do some disciples, in quotation marks, leave and some disciples, genuine disciples, see they have nowhere else to go? I think there are a few questions that we need to answer. Here are some of those crucial questions I think we need to answer this morning to understand why some people walked away and why some people saw they had nowhere else to go. Number one, is it true? Is it true that Jesus is the bread of life? Number two, if I follow, what will it cost me? And then number three, is what I gain greater than what I lose? I think those are three important questions to look like. So if I were, devote, if I were going to devote my life to a cause... The first thing I would need to know is if it is true. Okay, suppose somebody came up to me at the age of 16 and said, you know, the best way to affect change in this world is through politics. Now, I would have to believe that is true if I was going to pursue a life in political office. And then the second thing is I would have to weigh the cost factors. What would it cost me to pursue a life in political office? Well, it would probably mean achieving a certain level of, of education. It would mean a commitment to fundraise and campaign. Uh, it might mean I, I, I'm not going to be able to coach my kids in Little League. So there are costs that I would have to weigh. And then I would have to say, is what I gain worth it? In other words, is what I gain, does it outweigh the cost of it all? Okay, so here in this passage... Jesus has declared he is the bread of life and only those who feed on his flesh and drink his blood have eternal life. So question number one, is that true? And there's probably a lot of this crowd that walks away that thinks, no, no, I, I'm not buying that. I don't, I don't believe that is true. I think that's false. Now, the crowd, they do believe some things about Jesus. They seem to believe he is a miracle worker. 
They believe he can do signs. They like free bread. They're willing to follow him if he would be a political, militaristic leader who would free them from Rome. But Jesus claimed to be way more than that. In fact, in verse 54, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So he's saying there, he is the one who has life in himself and he is the one who is able to give eternal life. So, so in this, he's, he's letting these folks know who wanted to defeat Rome, he came to defeat a much greater opponent than Rome. He came to defeat sin. That is much harder to overthrow. And the only way that rebels like you and me are reconciled to holy God and forgiven of our sin is through Jesus going to the cross and dying for us. So I think he's saying here in John 6 in metaphor what he says literally in John 14, 6. Very similar message. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he's saying... John 6, hey, I'm the only way. You have to come to me. All other ways, all other supposed saviors, they are pretenders. Do you believe that? Jesus says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So the words of life Jesus speaks, this is the gospel. It's the gospel of a dying and rising Messiah in our place, taking on the punishment for our sin. Jesus says the Spirit gives life. Jesus' ministry is full of the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit comes down on Jesus at his baptism. His words are always Spirit-led words, and the Spirit works in our hearts for us to see we are sinners. We're separated from God. And to see the truth and beauty of who Jesus is, to be able to turn to him in faith and his sacrifice on the cross as our only solution to our sin problem. When we see that and turn to Jesus, we are born again. This is what Jesus in some ways is saying to Nicodemus in John 3. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So even in our John 6 text, as Jesus shares words with this original crowd about the cross, about his flesh, and about his blood, that original audience saw his words as scandalous and as harsh. Church, we should see them as full of grace and mercy and life. He died in our place to give life to all of us who believe. But there are some who look like they embrace that truth who actually reject it. Now there's a a popular, uh, in some ways a popular movement that's being put forward for those who have once been part of Christianity but they're now leaving it. And that movement is called deep deconstructing your faith. Now you may have heard that term, you may not have heard that phrase, but you can find podcasts, articles, books about it. 
one of the big names in evangelical Christianity in the 90s and early 2000s was Joshua Harris, author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which is a book helpful to many young people to inspire purity in dating. I mean, he became a very sought-after speaker at churches and conferences. Two years ago, he offered a five-week deconstruction course from Christianity. So he's no longer a professing Christian and he wants to help other people to be able to leave the Christian faith. We have to ask, well, how, how do you explain that? How do you make sense of something like that? Well, I think at the heart of it, they had to reject that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and the only way to God. Again, some appear to be genuine disciples for a time, but really aren't. But I want to say, the door's still open. The opportunity's still there, as long as they're breathing. They can see Jesus' way and truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through him. All right, so is it true? That's question number one we should ask. Is it true that Jesus is the bread of life? And then the second question, what will it cost me to follow him? Here's the answer. Everything. That's all, just everything. Okay? Everything. Now, Jesus does not soften that fact. I mean, he says over and over, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. It means you're all in with Jesus. It means you understand the only way that I'm going to be saved is by Jesus dying on the cross, bearing God's wrath against my sin, rising again, and all my hope and faith are in him. That's all in with Jesus. Now here's the thing. There could be those in this crowd in John chapter 6 who might intellectually agree that what Jesus is saying is truth. But who have counted the cost and said, I'm out. It's, it's too great a cost. I'm not going to fall. I have to give up too much. And don't submit their lives to Jesus' lordship. When I was pastoring in another state, I was uh, in a group of men and we were studying the Bible together. And... Uh, there's one young man who came and he was really testing the waters of Christianity. He wasn't yet a follower of Jesus. And I'm telling you, he, he was so, so close to crossing the line of faith in Jesus. Now, there were not intellectual stumbling blocks for him. He mentally agreed with the gospel. Intellectually, he believed that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him, just to put it in, in John 14, 6 terms. In terms of his mind, he believed what Jesus said and who Jesus was was true. But he didn't end up following Jesus at that time. Not because he thought it was false, but because of what it would cost him. He was dating a young lady who didn't want anything to do with Jesus. She didn't want to follow Christ and basically said that he could be in a relationship with Jesus or with her, not both. And I, I love the guy. And I, I try to be very clear. Spoke truth, warned him. But he chose the girl. 
So he believed the gospel's truth claims, but wanted a relationship there instead of with Jesus and, and walked away. Now please hear me. There's still time for him. There's still time for him to turn and see Jesus is the Savior and follow him. But that's the first question. Is it true that Jesus is the bread of life? Second question, what is it going to cost me? And then the third question, is what I gain by following Jesus greater than what it costs? If it costs us everything, why would we follow? Because you get everything. What you get is so much better than what you give up. So I think to follow Jesus, we would really have to believe that there is gain in following Jesus. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Stop there for a minute. So you see, we're all in with Jesus, deny ourselves, take up our cross, what does it cost us? It costs us that we have to give him our lives. But what does he say? But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, you give up everything and it looks like so much, but when you give it to Jesus and what you get back is so much greater than it looks like what you gave up was small. The people in John 6 failed to see this at this point. They thought we give up everything and we gain nothing. So they thought there was something better than following Jesus. And they walk away because they don't see what Peter saw. And I hope what you see. They didn't see that Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Now they, they heard his teaching, same teaching. They just thought there was better life somewhere else so folks why didn't Peter join the crowd and walk away why did Peter stay Jesus says hey do you want to go away as well Peter responded Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Church, just look at that. This is a massive statement by Peter. Anytime, but especially at this time, preceding Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, Peter's going to grow in his understanding of who Jesus is, especially after his resurrection. But I want you to see what he says is so right. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And if you've seen Jesus rightly, you can lose everything else. And if you get him, what you get is more than enough to sustain you through this life and for all of eternity. That's so important that we see in this text. What we gain is so much greater than what we lose such that we can't walk away. I ran across a question I thought was so right as I was studying for this sermon. And I'm glad Bobby said what he said before he sang his song about getting to heaven and wanting to be with Jesus. Because it goes right along with what the question I ran across. And I'm going to preface this by saying I spoke to people 
grieving the loss of a loved one many times. Folks, you can learn a lot about their theology in that moment. I spoke with someone just a couple of weeks ago who was grieving the loss of her husband, but she took great comfort in the fact that he is now with the Lord. That is right. That is glorious. That is good theology. But there's another way of talking about heaven that makes it sound like it's just a big family reunion or extended vacation. Like, well, he's, he's up there with, with grand, Grandma and he's catching all the fish he wants with Uncle Joe. Let me bring us back to Bobby. I want to be with Jesus. I want to be where Jesus is. So here's the question I ran across from John Piper in God is the Gospel. Um, that's, where he, that's where his question is located. The critical question for our generation, for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Isn't the ultimate joy of heaven to be with Jesus? And if Jesus gives maximum and forever joy, even if we lose everything now, don't we still have the greatest treasure? So Peter rightly recognized, he's got nowhere else to go because Jesus is the one he's hoped for his entire life. Listen, when Amanda and I got married, I didn't leave my options open for a better wife to come along. She was it, right? I, when, I, when I found Amanda, when we got married, I didn't need to go anywhere else. Now, if that's true of my spouse, how much more true of the one Savior of mankind? Jesus is the Holy One of God. That is a massive title. Isaiah gives the title Holy One of Israel for God 25 times. Now, Peter knows his Old Testament, and he sees Jesus rightly here as one with God, and his search is over. And when we see Jesus that way, our search is over. Church, there's, there's a movement of trying to find yourself. Who am I? Who is this person? I need to look inwardly. Don't look inwardly to self. You need to look outwardly to Christ. That's who we need to find. Listen, I don't need to find more about Jeremy. I know Jeremy. I need Jesus. When Peter says that they have believed and have come to know, the tense of those uh, verbs is such that it happened once and it continues to be the case in their lives. They have believed, they continued to believe. What do they believe? Jesus is the Holy One of God. He has the words of eternal life. There's one other time in the Gospels that someone says that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Do you know who utters that? It is a demon in Mark chapter 1, verse 21. 
Now, a demon can recognize Jesus is the Holy One of God. A demon doesn't rejoice in the Holy One of God. Well, Peter here sees Jesus as unique. He's the only Savior. He's the only one with the, eternal word, with the words of eternal life. He is the Holy One of God, and he can rejoice in it. And so can we. What do we give up? Everything. What do we gain? So much more. And that's how I want us to live. Jesus as the great joy of our hearts, such that no other philosophy, no other worldview could ever shake us from that. A few weeks ago, Saturday morning, I slept in a little bit and I woke up to a text from Amanda saying, Jimmy Buffett had died. Now that was a sobering text to receive. The thought, well, what now? You know, what now for him? Everybody who dies, regardless of earthly success and fame, go to one of two eternal destinies. And it's entirely dependent on a relationship with Jesus. So I thought a lot about Jimmy Buffett in the last month or so. He was such a popular musician, such a gifted songwriter. And I, I don't want to focus on his musical ability. Uh, certainly he had musical ability, though, though some of his music espoused sin. But he went to USM. He, he, was, he was local for a time. It went on to not just some success, but really worldwide success. What I really want to talk about as we close is his philosophy of life that was expressed through his music. Buffett was widely loved by people of many backgrounds for his music, but also for a lifestyle that he promoted in it. I, I was curious, I, I just I looked up his religious beliefs. He started out as a Catholic, but walked away from, from that. And really the philosophy, the term for the, his philosophy of life is uh, is island escapism. You can find that in New York Times article. You can find that in, in different places. His philosophy of life, island escapism. Now, if, if you listen to his music, I don't really have to explain that term to you, right? You, I mean, his fans were called parrot heads. So you understand that he promoted uh, ocean, beach, island type of life in his music. And hey, we are a, a beach family. If you ask us what's your ideal vacation spot, it is the beach. We love going to the beach. Some of you like going to Disney. That's great. You can have it. Uh, and if you want to fund it for six of us to go, we'll do it. But it'll break the bank for us. So we're, we're, we'll choose the beach. But I think a reason why Buffett was so universally loved is that so many people were attracted to his island escapism, to his island type of life that he made sound wonderful. Why? It sounds like gain. It sounds like gain, right? I mean, if you think about working your job five to six days a week, grinding away week after week, month after month, year after year, the idea of hanging out at the beach sounds pretty good, doesn't it? When we lived in Arizona, we go to San Diego sometimes for vacation, and I could be on the beach. I remember a time being on the beach and getting a call 
about my pastoral responsibilities. Those are two worlds colliding, right? Because when you're at the beach, you have no responsibility. You're just there. And then I get a call about something going on in the church and my pastoral responsibility kicks in. And so those two worlds collide. Island escapism promotes a carefree, fun-filled, responsibility, absent, happy-go-lucky lifestyle. So here's the question. Is that ultimate happiness? Is that the greatest life out there? And I think there are many people in the world who look at that and say, yes, that is, that is life. That is true life. And I say, it is not. And that's come from a guy who loves the beach and loves the ocean. Why? We start off with hunger. There is a gnawing hunger in every soul. All 8 billion plus people on this planet are created with a hunger to be rightly in relationship with the God of the universe. You can't escape it. You can't get rid of it. That hunger is there. And I know in and of myself, I am separated from God by my own merit and I am alienated from him. So what can island escapism give you? It can give you some happiness now. Jesus says, I can give you full happiness for all eternity. Island escapism says, indulge yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, and the life you get will be so much greater than the life you give up. Island escapism says, this life, this 60, 70, 80 years you get, that's all there is. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever comes to me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I took some words from Jimmy Buffett's hit, Who Gets to Live Like This. I'm going to quote some of it, and I want to come back and compare it. There are waves outside my window. There are airplanes in the sky. There are ships on the horizon and a beach always nearby. Fish tacos on the table. No surfer can resist. How did I get this lucky? Tell me who gets to live like this. I'm happy to inform you that we get to live like this. End of the quote I'll give. Now if you say that sounds like life, I would say to you, don't settle. Don't settle for an inferior temporary happiness that lasts for a blip, not for eternity. He mentioned fish tacos. I really like fish tacos. It's getting close to lunchtime. Be thrilled with some fish tacos. There's a taco restaurant in San Diego that we found that had the best fish tacos. We'd vacation with our friends, uh, my friend that was here this past week. We'd vacation with them. I'd go pick up a bunch of those fish tacos at a time. They were a dollar at the time. I think they were a dollar. And we'd come back. We'd take them to the beach, and right there on the beach, Watching the sunset, we would eat them. It was wonderful. They tasted better on the beach watching the sunset. Here's the thing. The next day, I still woke up hungry. There was another appetite coming around that needed to be satisfied. There's an inescapable, 
inescapable hunger in every soul. And the only way that it is satisfied is through Jesus Christ. So I'm asking you to delight in the richest food in all the universe, and that is Jesus Christ. Those fish tacos were cheap. They were a buck. Eternal life that Jesus offers is free to us through the work of Jesus who willingly gave himself for us. So what do you need to do to enjoy the richest of food? Here's what you have to do. One thing. Come. In fact, I say come because it's in Isaiah chapter 55. I want you to hear verses 1 and 2. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Church, feast on Jesus. Eight sermons, John 6, 71 verses. Jesus is the greatest food in the universe. Don't settle for inferior offers. And here's the power of the gospel. Okay, here's the power of the gospel. I'm closing with this. Those folks who walked away in verse 66 because they didn't like the message Jesus proclaimed about the cross, if after Jesus' death and resurrection, they see that it is true and they come, they're going to be in heaven. People who walked away, people we studied this morning, if they come back, they'll be in heaven. If they turn to Jesus, if they come. You say, boy, they, that, was a, that was an awful sin. But let's look at us. Do you have any awful sin in your history? Do you have any vile sin? We sang a great verse this morning. I brought a hymnal up here. I don't usually bring it up. But in the song, To God Be the Glory, I want you to hear this, that second verse. The second verse. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. If you're a vile offender... You believe in that moment you are pardoned by Jesus. And I just want to offer that invitation. If you said, I'm a vile offender, Jesus won't love me, come to him. Come to him. Believe. And you will be saved. And if you're in that group who have come and you've had that vile sin forgiven, rejoice in the greatest treasure of the universe, Jesus Christ. Today, and for the next billion years and for all eternity. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for our time and your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for leading us today. Thank you, God, for the good news of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, I pray that there would be great rejoicing in the hearts of your people today as we have seen what Jesus does, has done, and does for us. 
Thank you, Lord, that what we have given up, which is everything to follow Jesus, pales in comparison to eternal life and eternal joy in him. And Lord, I pray that if there are those under the sound of my voice who have not yet turned to Jesus Christ, the true bread of life, and feasted on him, I pray today that they would turn and be saved. I pray that every person would see that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.